We'll continue this morning in worship through studying the Word of God. We, we believe all of our lives are, is worship, and uh, now we're going to continue to do that. Same thing we're doing in singing, but through the Word of God this morning. So if you've been with us for a while, you know we're in the middle of a series in the book of Ecclesiastes. Um, if you've not been with us for a while, let me get you up to speed a little bit. Uh, Ecclesiastes is uh, written by uh, what the Bible calls the wisest man to ever have lived or live. And it was one of three books written by King Solomon. Uh, it's been interesting in the series to hear the wisdom that we think many of us would think that is uh, new, that maybe it sounds very modern, the thinking in Ecclesiastes. Some of the thoughts that are shared by this king so many years ago have been shared at high schools and middle schools and colleges on campuses today as if there's some profound revelation. Uh, but the truth is that we have seen that this has been revealed over and over again by God. It's kind of an interesting thing about Ecclesiastes that we have this book that if you read it just from a fleshly perspective, just from a worldly perspective, it can be really depressing actually to read the book of Ecclesiastes. You'll remember that it starts out famously, meaningless, meaningless, all life is meaningless as the teacher. And uh, the book ends the same way, spoiler alert, that's where he ends, where he starts. But if you look at it differently, as if this is a consideration of the human layer, but if there's this God layer happening that's far bigger, then it changes everything. And in fact, I believe it should change how we actually think about our own lives. Last week we were talking about the meaning and purpose of our work. What does it gain you when you spend your whole life investing in something, only at the end to have to give it over to someone who may not have worked for it, didn't work for it, and may not deserve it? and may not manage it well. What does it mean? What does your life mean? I, th I think it's interesting, and I, I want to kind of just spend a minute um, pondering that question that we should be asking. What are we doing with our lives? It might be easy for you to say, well, I've, I've always thought, I, I knew what I wanted to do when I was a little kid, and I grew up, and I became that person I wanted to be. I believe it's a challenge, no matter what stage of life we're in, that we should always be asking the question, am I doing what I should be doing? I don't mean in kind of some, you know, a, a metaphysical way, some kind of a hyper-spiritual way. I mean, but in a practical way. Are you where God has you for a purpose, and are you where you're supposed to be? I think we see our culture working that out in many ways these days. But it's an important question to ask. And I know after last week's message, uh, many, a uh, few of you, I should say, uh, had a conversation with me about that very thing. I, I don't know that I am where God... Uh, I know I'm where God wants me to be, but I'm not sure that I'm where I'm supposed to be right now. I think maybe I'm supposed to be changing or trans transitioning or, or, or doing life differently than I have been. And let me just encourage you in that, because if you felt that way, that's a good conviction. The hope, the goal of this entire series is to press us into a deeper relationship with the God who made us. That's the goal. Not to give us like cosmic answers that we can go out and we can manipulate the world, but to press into a relationship that we say, when we wake up in the morning, God, what would you, want, what would you have for me today? And, and when we sleep at night, God, thanks for what you gave me today. You'll see this morning as we get into the book of Ecclesiastes again, uh, Solomon has sober judgment about those things. He does not put on airs. He does not mince words, right? He just calls it like he sees it. And we should, we should as well. I wonder when we talk about wisdom, what we e even think wisdom looks like. What, what does it mean to be wise? Uh, does it mean to have right judgment? 
to make uh, good decisions at the, at the right time. You, you remember that uh, for King Solomon, it meant to have a discerning heart. He wanted to discern in his heart. But I wondered what you would think of a king who would stand in front of people and order that a child be killed. I wonder what you think of a king who would, who would make that part of his judgment. Many of you know the story. I think it's interesting and worth pointing out to remind us of the real, you know, function of Solomon's life and discernment is uh, there were some mothers who were disputing about a child and, and, and they were born nearly the same time and they were, one baby had died and, and both mothers were now saying that the baby who was alive was their baby, um, that they couldn't, couldn't deal with the thought that their child had died and, and, and the, it was the other mother who had the dead baby and they were trying to steal my child. It's kind of a funny thing, isn't it, to, to think, I mean, what a... What a defining moment uh, for a king with a discerning heart. Of all the things he could say, he could listen, he could take testimony, he could hear someone say, you know, I, I feel like you're the mom. I, 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 you know, I know your family. I'm pretty sure you're telling the truth here. But instead of all that, this King Solomon, the great discerning heart, says, bring the child to me and cut the child in half. I mean, it almost seems like a sarcastic answer, doesn't it, to two mothers who can't agree on who a child belongs to? Just kill the child, and you can each have half, and you'll be done. It must have been a scandalous proclamation. <laughs> can you imagine? Going before a judge, just, just kill him. And, and if you stop there and you think, well, that's all, that's everything Solomon would do was to make it fair, to say you can't agree on whose child is, we'll just kill this child, divide him, and you can have each half, and then you can be satisfied. You, you've gotten your way. It's fair. It's equitable. And if that was the end of it, you would think, what a, what a terrible king. You, you fool. But what happened? You know the story. One of the women said, do it. And the other woman said, no, let her have him. What's the point? A discerning heart. I think it's a shocking story because it tells us something about how Solomon functions and, and maybe what he hopes us to understand from all his ranting about life. You see, in the moment that that, you know, that uh, proclamation was made, here's what happens the true mother says, don't kill the child. And the hurting mother says, do it. It would be fair. Because it's not fair. What happened ultimately? Hearts were revealed. That's what happened. See, it wasn't the end. This book is much the same way. If you think it's the end, you can, yeah. But if you think it's about discerning a heart, listen to me. What am I living my life for? Who am I believing? What am I willing to die for? Well, then it reveals the heart. And there's great wisdom and judgment to be found. This is the king that wrote the book. This is the king who wrote this word of wisdom. That our hearts might be revealed. I'm not, it's not lost on me uh, as we get into the word this morning that, that we are standing again on the heels of great tragedy as a country, right? And uh, we don't often do this at Family Bible particularly, but it's real life. We live in this space of brokenness and violence and evil and, dis and uh, disharmony. 
And uh, that's what Solomon's going to address today. This great wise king from 3,000 years ago. That the world is a broken place. So I just wanted to mention that and to be prayerful about that as we, as we pray this morning for God's discernment. We'd also pray for God's healing, listen, and his conviction of how we ought to live because of that truth. Pray with me if you would. Father God, we thank you so much for the chance that you've given us to be here this morning with you and to um, be in this life again today with you and to experience the truth of who you are. Pray, Father God, uh, just a prayer of, of healing, of comfort and consolation, of, of wisdom and truth um, after the week of um, young people's lives being taken and the unthinkable happening. Father God, I, I feel like it just lays bare again our brokenness, our sinfulness, our hatefulness, our divisiveness, and how all the things that we say and all the positions we take end up leading to death. This morning, Father, we need the giver of life. Would you give us your wisdom and discernment? Would you pour out your Holy Spirit upon your people that we might know you? Would you give us glad hearts and, and uh, discerning hearts to, to know the path of obedience? Would you help us understand your word today, Father God, because without you we cannot. Would you help us to discern rightly what you're calling us to and who you're calling us to be. Father God, as we uh, follow you together, I trust you with this prayer. I, I pray it with the absolute confidence that the work that Jesus started on the cross 2,000 years ago um, will work out your purposes for now and for eternity. May you be glorified as we study, learn, and worship together. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and it's in Ephesians chapter 4. I think it's 642. The Bible's on the chair rows. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you're welcome to grab one of those and read it. I would encourage you to do that. If you don't have a Bible, I would love to get one to you, so talk to me after service. I'd love for you to have one. Picking up where we left off, chapter 4, verse 1. Again, I looked and I saw the, all the oppression that was taking place under the sun, I saw the tears of the oppressed, and they have no comforter. Power was on the side of the oppressor, and they have no comforter. And I declared that the dead who are already, have already died are happier than the living who are now still alive. But better than both is he who has not yet been born. Who has not seen the evil that has been done under the sun. And I saw all the labor and achievement springing from man's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Solomon jumps in again here. This is kind of a continuation of last week's thought that there's injustice in the world and it's not right. It's not right. And there's no one to comfort people. And this is being spoken, as I already shared with you, from someone who had a pretty good understanding of justice. But also said with this wisdom, this knowledge, comes great difficulty and great struggle. And I think it's remarkable, and we shouldn't pass it over, that he says, it's better for those who have not been born than those who have been born to this broken world. 
That, that's something he's going to repeat in a minute. That he has this conviction that somehow if this life is all there is, it's better to not have lived. If this life is all there is, it's better to not have lived at all because of all the brokenness and the hurt that we are surrounded with. And it is funny, by the way, to think about who we blame for the brokenness of life, right? Many of us have a tendency to just kind of go, it's not my fault that it's all broken. But it's never us. It's never our thing, right? It's always someone else. So I'm going to pick up here in in verse 4. And I saw the labor of all achievement and springing from men's envy of his neighbor. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. The fool folds his hands and ruins himself. Better one handful with tranquility than two hands fulls with toil and a chasing after the wind. He's kind of making a point there that to do nothing is foolishness. You'll go hungry. Uh, to, to have one hand where you have peace, you have something to eat, but to have two hands and full of stress, well, it ain't worth it. Life isn't worth it. Again, I saw something meaningless under the sun. There was a man all alone, and he had neither son nor brother. There was no end to his... I'm going to go, there we go. If one falls down, his friend can help him up. But pity the person who falls and has no one to help him up. Also, if two lie down together, they will stay warm. But how, how can one keep warm all alone? Though one may be overpowered, two can defend themselves. And a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Do you see him kind of pushing this issue of, of our life's work into relationships? Do you see that happening, right? He says, what a sad affair if you're all alone. If all you've done is for yourself, it's completely, it's a miserable business. But he says, if two people, uh, someone falls down and there's someone else to help them up. This reminds me of, of um, a little experience that I've had where uh, I've been out snowboarding with friends. <laughs> and sometimes when you're snowboarding with friends, you want to hang out with a group and it's a lot of fun. And sometimes you want to go off by yourself. Well, I want to go off by myself, right? Especially when I'm feeling really extra courageous, uh, extra, you know, whatever bold but there have been times where i have crashed really hard when no one's around and the first thing that you think is thank god no one saw that that's the first thing you think and then the second one you think is this sucks as you lay there and there's snow shoved everywhere and you're isolated and your gear is scattered and you think i gotta get i gotta get up and sometimes you don't want to do it. You, I just remember, I just laid there and breathed, <sighs> right? And I have the relationship with God, at least, that I can talk to God and say, thank you, I didn't die. Help me get out of here. I've prayed my way off the mountain a bunch of times. But let me tell you what else. There's been times I've crashed with friends. And they're, they'll stop. You okay? And you know what happens? I pop up way faster. <laughs> I'm sure your life is like that too. If you fall down and there's no one, it's a, it's, a, it's a bad situation. But then he makes this comment, a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. You know, there's lots of like great wisdom in that, right? That things get stronger when you bind them together. I think we live in this tension between wanting to be absolutely independent and self-reliant and, and, and knowing the truth that we all absolutely need other people to be strong and reliable, right? Like, I don't know if you feel that tension, but you just want to, I want to be my own person. I want to do my own thing. 
I don't need anybody else. But it's a very fragile position to be in. But here he says, the cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Many of us would talk about that and the idea of not just three friends, but having a relationship with someone else. As a matter of fact, it's not lost on me as we study this that it says uh, two can defend themselves, that we worship a God who, represent, who represents himself in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And indeed, they can defend themselves. So here's the warning. I told you this was a warning uh, last week. It says, better a, a, this is verse 13, better a poor but wise youth than, a wise but, or, than an old but foolish king who no longer knows how to take a warning. The youth may have come from prison to the kingship or he may have been born in poverty within his kingdom. I saw that all who lived, walked under the sun, followed the youth. The king's successor... Oh, I'm sorry, the king's successor. Here we go, 16. There was no end to all the people who were before them, but those who came later were not pleased with the successor. There's a pattern here. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. One of the things that we dug into a little bit in our family group last week was that idea that Solomon seems to be wrestling with A, who his father is, and then very quickly B, who his son's going to be, Right? They always follow the younger one. Oh, this is so much better, so much better. But with the successor too, they're also disappointed. It's a meaningless business of chasing after the wind. So then he presses us in here. So this is what we're trying to get to, verse uh, 1 of chapter 5. So guard your steps when you go to the house of God. That's a warning. Be careful when you go to the house of God, he says. Go near to listen rather to the, than to off the, offer the sacrifice of fools who do not know that they do wrong. What is a sacrifice of fools? Anybody know? Meaningless words. The sacrifice of fools. Matter of fact, it says it in verse 2 to clarify. Do not be quick with your mouth. Do not be hasty with your heart to utter anything before God. And God is in heaven and you are on earth, so let your words be few. As a dream comes when there are many cares, so the speech of a fool when there are many words. It's foolishness. It's talking about when we draw near to God to, to believe that we are going to instruct or equip or um, communicate or clarify things to God that he does not know already. He says, no, whenever you're, whenever you're there, listen. When you spend time with God, listen more than you talk. When you draw near to God, and I want you to see the continuation of this push from the meaningless of life into these relationships that truly matter, right? He's encouraged us to be in relationship with one another, and now he's saying, and when you draw near to God, you remember the first time that he found any hope in life was because of the satisfaction of labor that was a gift of God. Pushing in further, chapter, uh, verse 4. When you make a vow to God, do not delay in keeping it. He has no pleasure in fools. Fulfill your vow. It is better not to take a vow than to take a vow and not fulfill it. Do not let your mouth lead you into sin. And do not protest the messenger, my vow was a mistake. Why should God be angry at you 
for what you say and destroy the work of your hands. Much dreaming and many words are meaningless. Therefore, stand in awe of God, right? How, this is one of those things that's, again, very practical. But how many times have you said, God, if you just get me out of this, <laughs> you know, I, will, I won't do that again. I'll, make, I'll change everything, God, if you just will help me out this one time. What do you think about that having real implications? That in the reality of our relationship with God in that moment, the God who is, not the God that we think may not be there, the God who is in that moment, we make that promise, we don't take it seriously, and that's offensive. That's very offensive. And here, Solomon's warning is, be careful, discern it, listen more than you speak, and if you make a promise, keep it. Tell God you're going to do something, do it. Don't be slow. He's not to be trifled with. And this then, this conviction moves into an action. So that's, that's kind of, okay, so I'm going to confess something, right? And I don't know if you're like me. I say it all the time. I don't know if you're like me. But getting from that thought that, yeah, I want to be a person of my word into the actual doing is difficult. Difficult for me. Maybe not difficult for you, but it's difficult for me. You see something, you hear about a tragedy, you say someone should do something, right? Oh, it's terrible. And maybe even you go and you pray about it. I heard a quote this morning on the way to church where somebody said this. They said, so many people are offering thoughts and prayers, but it's only thoughts and prayers. What kind of a witness is that when something happens? So it's important that we go from this idea to this um, uh, move, movement, right, to do something. Verse 8, if you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights being denied, do not be surprised at such things because one official is watched by a higher one and over them both are often a higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all and the king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has money enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. By the way, the key words there are love. We've talked about this a lot already uh, in family Bible's history, but I will say money is um, uh, not good or bad. It's just money, but our love of money is evil. <laughs> if you love money, it's evil, and Solomon says the same thing here. Whoever loves money never has enough. It's insatiable, and whoever loves wealth never is satisfied with their income. It's meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume the goods. And what benefit are they to the owner except to feast his eyes on them? I mean, this is so profound to think about. For all the stuff that we have, what good is it? What good is it? What does it mean? I'm kind of a car guy. I, I, I kind of like cars. But what good are they really? Other than to look at it, right? It says to feast your eyes on it. Or, or what good is that new piece of technology? Is it, is it really the technology or is it to be seen with technology that's the most important? I notice people have like Fitbits or smartwatches. I'm always impressed. I'm always impressed. Wow, you have a smartwatch. Why? Because it's to be seen. And it's insatiable. The more stuff there is to be had, the more people there are to have it, and there's no end of it. I want to remind you, this was 3,000 years ago. 
Do you know how much stuff has come and gone in 3,000 years? At some point, you would think someone would say, that's enough. But it's not. And what benefit are all these things to the owner except to feast their eyes? Look at what I have. Look at what I have. The sleep of a, of a laborer is sweet, whether he eats little or a lot. But the abundance of a rich man gives him no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owner, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when he has a son, there is nothing left for him. I want to stop real quick and talk about kind of two tragedies. He says hoarding is a tragedy, and losing it with no inheritance is a tragedy. Those are the two things that Solomon says are just not good, right? And again, I just heard someone speaking. They were talking about the um, kingdom idea of finances and how it's so different. And they said, if someone said to you, hey, man, I am, uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give everything I have to this mission or this purpose or whatever. I'm going to give everything I have uh, away uh, to it. And, and they weren't very well off. What would your advice be to them? You might want to think. You got to eat. You got to provide for yourself, right? Be careful. Keep a little. I, mean, I know you're doing it in faith. Just keep a little. Or someone else was among us, and they said, man, I'm doing super good. Business is growing. Things are going great. You know, 401K is getting bigger. The whatever, you know, my investments, my retirement is going. And I'm just going to get one more thing. I'm going to buy some more equipment. I'm going to do some more stuff. I'm just going to keep. And, and we would, and how would you respond to that person? And, and I think we would all say, good job. Good for you. Live a little, right? Like you're succeeding, man. The crazy thing about those two scenarios, about the person who has little and say, I'm going give, to give this away, and the person who has a bunch, so I'm just going to make a better plan. I'm going to have more over here. I'm going to do more over there. Is that's exactly the opposite of what Jesus taught. Do you remember? And the widow went to the temple and put two mites in there. And he goes, look at that. That is beautiful. Or whenever the rich guy is storing up barns. That's how they had riches back then, right? Look at all I have. More barns. And what did Jesus teach? You fool, do you not know that this night your very life will be demanded of you? See, Solomon's pecking at that same concept here. That to hoard your wealth is destructive. It's a grievous evil. Look at what it says. A grievous evil is to hoard things for ourselves. It's a harm to the owner. It's not good. And then the other grievous evil is wealth lost through some misfortune. So that when he has a son, there's nothing left for the son or the inheritor to have. Solomon's on the same kind of thread about that idea of what's harmful to us and what's helpful for us. And then he makes this conclusion in 15. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and as he comes, so he leaves. He takes nothing from his labor that can be carried in his hand. I want to read that. Naked a man comes from his mother's womb, and so as he comes, so he leaves. He takes nothing from his labor so that he, that he can carry in his hand. And that got me to begging a question. What do you take from your labor that you can't carry in your hand? 
Is there a way that you could have something from what you do with your life that is more than something you could physically, <laughs> physically touch? That was just a wake-up call for everybody, including me. Yes, Lord. You know what I'm saying? Is there anything that comes from your labor that you can't, that you can't say, this is what I have? And you might readily say, well, no, there, there's not. I think um, he's begging a question a little bit here. 16, this too is a grievous evil. As a man comes, so he departs, and what does he gain since he toils in the wind? All his days he eats in darkness with great frustration, affliction, and anger. And then I realize that it is good and proper for a man to eat and drink, to find satisfaction in his toilsome labor under the sun. During the few days of life God has given him. This is one of those little mounds of meaning he's trying to pile up. For this is his lot. Moreover, when God gives any man wealth and possessions and enables him to enjoy those possessions and wealth, to accept his lot and be happy in his work, this is a gift of God. He seldom reflects on the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with the gladness of heart. Solomon's like, there's some joy just in that. If that's what you can get out of it, there's some joy just in that. All right. We're going to press on. So I want to get, I want to get to the, this is, I, and I'll, I'll, I'll say to you, like, this, this is big stuff, you know, to, f- to figure that out. Like, that what is it all about? What does it all mean? Verse 1, chapter 6. I have seen another evil under the sun. So he's kind of done with that part. Yeah, you might be able to enjoy it. I've seen another evil under the sun, though, and it waves heavily on men. God gives a man wealth, so the wealthy, same as last time, possessions and honor, right, same, so that he lacks nothing his heart desires, but God does not enable him to enjoy those things, and a stranger enjoys them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say, and this is, a stillborn child is better than that man. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is forever shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man, even if he lives a thousand years twice over but fails to enjoy his prosperity. Do not all go to the same place. You would not think that that would be the saddest person alive. Like, I don't know that any of us believe that would be true. The saddest person alive would be someone who had accumulated a lot and even, and this is what blew me away about it, and even had many children and a family and lots of, you know, inheritors and all this stuff, right? But ultimately not be able to enjoy any of it. To be miserable the entire time. You know what that, it's like you miss the blessing. You're missing the blessing in your life. And Solomon says, for that person who has that life and has all that abundance but can't enjoy it, better they weren't born at all. I mean, that is radical language in your Bible. Radical language. It would be better to have been forever shrouded in darkness than to have that kind of abundance and not be given the gift of being able to enjoy it. 
What do you think that's about? This idea that um, it says, and God has not enabled that person to enjoy those gifts. God has not enabled that person to enjoy those gifts. It's a meaninglessness, a grievous evil, Solomon says. I just think uh, this dresses down our absolute infatuation with stuff and accomplishment, you know? And we make so many assumptions about people and their lifestyle and how happy they must be. Look at those people, how happy they must be over there. And that means in our own hearts, we chase after those same things, we run after those same things as if they're the most important things in our life. And then you're so happy when someone finally says to you, hey, how are things going? You're like, great. Because, you know, we're, we're really making success. We're really, we're closer to those people over there who look so happy. So if you're able to enjoy it, no matter how little you have, you're way more blessed than someone who can't enjoy any of it. What is it about? What, what is this all about? Verse 7, we're going to wrap up here. All man's efforts are for his mouth, yet his appetite is never satisfied. What advantage does a wise man have over a fool? What does a poor man gain by knowing how to conduct himself before other people? Better what the eye sees than the roving of the appetite. So, so now he's kind of saying, it's better that you can just see stuff than you always crave it, crave it, crave it, and never have it. This too is meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Whatever exists has already been named, and what, what man is has been known. No man can contend with one who is stronger than he is. The more the words, the less the meaning. And how does that profit anyone? For who knows what is good for a man in this life during the few and meaningless days he passes through like a shadow? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he's gone? We're going to stop there today. But how, who knows? That is kind of how he ended, we ended last week too, these questions. Who knows and who can tell? Who can tell him what will happen under the sun after he's gone? Who knows what's coming next? can be, I'm just saying, like, just as a matter of fact, depressing. What's the point? Matter of fact, I feel like Solomon himself and says, the more the words, the less the meaning. I'm like, you're getting there, brother. <laughs> what does it mean? He's just deconstructing everything we would say has value, importance, worth chasing after. Who's to say what's next, right? It's just great moment. Um, I wanted to keep a couple things in mind, I guess, as we move here. He's begging a question. Who can know? Who can promise? What, what's next? There's this great moment in Jesus' life right toward the end. <laughs> now, I say right toward the end, they don't know it's the end. Jesus knows it's the end, and we know it's the end because we get to read it, right? So it's written for us in hindsight. And it says, Jesus was getting ready to go to the cross to die for our sins. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. What's the command? Trust in God, trust also in me. And he makes this ridiculous statement. He says, in my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. But I am going there to prepare a place for you. 
And if I go and I make a place for you, I will come back and take you with me that you may also be where I am. This happens with Thomas, ironically, when he says, how can we know where you're going? He says, I'm going to go ahead of you, but I'm going to come back for you. How, how does this tie in? What does what Solomon keep saying? Everybody dies. What good does it do? Everybody dies. Who can know what's next? And Jesus, his instructions to his disciples are, I know what's next. I'm going to go make a place. I'm going to come back and get you and take you to be with me where I am in that place. And this is after death. This is after death. Wait, let's unpack it a little more. Told you how Jesus went like, wow, look at that. And oh, that poor guy didn't know it. Didn't see it coming, right? What, what good did your labor have that you can't carry with your hands? Do you remember the teaching of Jesus? Don't store up treasure on earth where thief can break in and steal and moth and rust can destroy and disintegrate it. Instead, store up treasure in heaven, right? Draw nearer. This is the gospel moving us forward through this hopelessness of man, this chasing after the wind to say there's something better coming. Listen, if, if, you, if you think that everything that you have in life is in this life, right? And I'm, I'm learning with you here. I'm not preaching at you, I promise. I'm learning with you. If you think everything you have in life is in this life, then the further, the closer you get to death, Solomon, you can hear it, the further it seems to have any meaning. You're getting further and further from those moments where you were deceived into believing you had it figured out, you had succeeded, you had it all. You had honor and you had family and you're moving further from it because you're getting closer and closer to death. And if that's your treasure, <laughs> if that's what your hope is in, if, if that's what you're giving your life for, you know, there's going to be this hump moment and then you're, it's going to be in the rearview mirror and you're going to go, I'm, I'm losing it, I'm losing it. I'm, I'm about to be stripped bare and you're hopeless but if you believe what Jesus teaches which is your treasures over here and all the stuff you did over here was moving you toward over here you know what I'm saying and this is death you look back and you're like I'm investing what I have for the kingdom and I don't mean like in some religious way I mean because you see it's different right like you can't let it be the same and you're moving away from your stuff but you're moving closer to what you're ultimately trying to get you see that and you're getting closer and closer because this is the model that Jesus used he wasn't leaving treasure on earth he was storing up treasure in heaven and he says don't do that don't make your treasure here make it there and then all of a sudden the closer you get the, the more you draw near now here it is into this relationship with God to say God you are the God of all creation you've given me all things what should I do with them today you're just moving closer and closer to this ultimate relationship that has great meaning and satisfaction and then all of a sudden get this the further you get from this life and the further you get from all your accomplishments and achievements the closer you get to your treasure with God your great inheritance do you see that and all of a sudden you go, I'm just letting go of that stuff because it's not that important because this is far more important. This unlocks some of the mystery in Jesus' teaching for me when he would say, while you're on earth, use your wealth to, to get influence friends, right? To, to make friends, to help them out. Why? Because you're storing up treasure in heaven. Do good to those who curse you and pray for those who are, why? Because you're storing up treasure in heaven. 
Don't hold on to your tunic. If somebody wants to take your tunic, take it. Why? Because you're storing up treasure in heaven. Because ultimately this whole world is passing away, but what's coming, the kingdom that's coming, is way more valuable. And I won't even get into streets of gold and all that because that's just us. I mean, that's our understanding. Like, it's way more valuable. Why is that? Because God's there. God's not in the stuff. God's there. Solomon takes us on this journey through this kind of hopelessness and despair to hopefully cause us to reflect and say, what is it about? My prayer is that we would see more and more it's about this relationship with one another and this relationship with God himself. That our treasure would be in heaven. Oh, listen, that we could defeat the grave by taking things that we can't hold in our hands from our labor because they're in the kingdom. Does that make sense? That we'd be investing in the things that God calls precious and valuable and not what our eyes want to feast upon. This is the vision that Jesus had in his life. This is how he was able to look at the cross, to look at his disciples falling away, to look at all the sadness around him, the brokenness and the sin in the world, and still have hope and still have a way forward. This morning we're going to celebrate communion together, and we're going to transition into that now. This idea that Jesus set a table for his disciples before he died because there was greater hope coming than they had known to that point. There was greater hope coming than they had known um, to that point. I don't think, and I'm saying this myself, I don't think we take Jesus seriously enough. I don't think we do. I don't think we are willing to let him deconstruct us and, and, and lay bare our sin and our brokenness that we might be free. The Apostle Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, said, uh, the thing that I received from the Lord, I am passing on to you. That our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he took the cup and said, this cup is a new promise made in my blood. Every time you drink it, I want you to remember me. Because when you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. Do you hear the word? Every time we eat this bread and we drink this cup, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes back. This is the gift to us. Therefore, anyone who eats the bread or drinks the cup in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord himself. Therefore, a person should examine themselves before they eat the bread and drink the cup. Because anyone who eats and drinks without recognizing the body of our Lord eats and drinks judgment on themselves. The opportunity is um, for us to draw closer into this union with Christ. I don't know where you are today. I want to say a couple things about communion. We're going to pass the communion elements around this morning. I want you to feel open to receive them, right? Like it's the Lord's table, it's not our table. So if you want to receive them, receive them. I would encourage you to spend some time as you're waiting and as you have it to pray. 
you know, like that individual, God, what are you doing in my life? What would you have for me? I mean, and then listen, right? I'll do the same. And then as you're led, you can receive the element. You don't have to wait for everyone to do it together. And then after we've had some time passed, I'll come up and we'll close in, in prayer. I want to pray uh, as we get into this time. Father God, we thank you so much for uh, your word and for the time we've had to come near to you. Father, we thank you so much for uh, the wisdom you've imparted and, and, and more the cross. Father, the truth is we don't have to understand it all. We have to know you. We have to know you. Father, I pray for our friends here who maybe um, have believed a lie that you don't love them, that you uh, have left them in this life with no hope or way forward. I pray against that because it's not true. I see in your Son and our Savior Jesus Christ the revelation that everything was about what's next. Everything was about what's next. And so, Father, for my friends here who believe that there's no hope way forward, I pray that your Holy Spirit, in a powerful, mighty way, would demonstrate your great and eternal hope for sinners such as us. And Father, as we come to your table to eat and drink and remember, I pray that in our lives we proclaim the death and resurrection of Jesus until you come back for us. I trust you with that. It's our dying hope. I pray, Father, that you be glorified. All these things, everything, we pray and we bind up in Jesus' name. Amen.